I want to have a shift in our pace for, for this Sunday. You know, uh, I'm nearing, I'm nearing three years in this community, in this church. And, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe 85% of those sermons have been about change, right? Um, yeah, about dying, (laughs) about, uh, letting go, about, uh, making hard decisions. Um, and, you know, when we did our uh, poetry season a couple of months ago, one of the things I said about poetry was that, you know, when we, when we approach learning and growth, often it's through this sort of front door. We're like, I'm going to say something to you and maybe it'll bring about a change. Here it is. Was there a change? Sometimes, sometimes not. One of the things that poetry does is it kind of sneaks in through the back door. Right? You're kind of chewing on a poem, and all of a sudden you realize that it, it's kind of worked its way into you. You know, the, the Bible is filled with poems, and one of the other devices that the Bible uses to explore truth and meaning and religion and God is an ancient practice called parables. You know, Jesus in the New Testament speaks mostly in parables. We have small little tidbits of Jesus saying things directly while he's walking through a town, responding to questions that some people posed. We have a lot of things that we say we think Jesus said. But when Jesus has the opportunity to talk, to teach about what God is like, about what spirituality is like, about change. The approach that Jesus takes is to use parables. Now, I don't think we're that familiar with parables. Just consider for yourself. Do you know, like, have you thought, like, what is a parable? Is it just some sort of, like, silly little light story? Is it like a fair? Is a parable like a fairy tale? What what is a parable? You know, when I when I think about parables, I often think, especially as Jesus uses them, that they are like a discourse. That it is this flowing conversation that is less about one to two interactions. And more this kind of back and forth developing symphony of discourse. As you explore meaning and you try to engage with truth. But discourse, discourse, that word in Latin, literally means to move off course. To have a discourse means to have a new course. And that's what a parable does when it's at its best. Different from something like a myth. A myth. A myth, which is all about trying to explain why are things the way they are. How did we get here? Myths try to make meaning. Try to show and point to truth. Parables, though, invite you to explore everything around it and find maybe a new truth. I love this saying that parables don't reveal truth. They break open truth. I love that. Uh, I wanted to take a shift this morning 
and share some parables with you. Uh, Again, Jesus speaks in parables. And so uh, it seemed appropriate to just take a moment, just a day, and offer a few to you. Maybe they will be useful. I hope not. (laughs) I hope that they don't slot in perfectly to your logic and your framework. And you go, yes, good, another parable that I can use like a tool. Instead, I hope the parable is disruptive. That as the parable begins, you go, yes, yes, I'm tracking. And then something happens that alters or frustrates or seems absurd. And then as the parable concludes, you're left at a place of trying to figure out what is what and how you want to move forward. I'm not going to discuss the parables with you. If you've ever been to a really great art gallery and you've stood and looked at a painting that is stirring, that is compelling, you know, you've, you've been in that situation where for whatever reason you're kind of drawn to this one. The last thing I want in that moment is the artist sitting right next to me saying, now here's what this painting means. There's this great Jewish parable about these two old men that could never agree about theology. They, They argued their whole lives, decade after decade after decade after decade. And finally, they're, they're old men in their 90s and they're, they're playing a game of chess, but they're really just arguing about theology. And seeing this God who has the patience of a saint um, can't deal with this finally and says, enough is enough. They're doing damage. I'm going to have to come down and set them right. Tell them what's what. So God, you know, parts the clouds and comes down and says, listen up, fellas. Like, this is, this is what's going on here. And the two men, in a brilliant moment of unity, turn to God and say, who do you think you are? There's something beautiful about not just seeking the answer, but seeking the, the process, the journey, the exploration. Trying to not just find the truth, but trying to break open the truth. Jesus withdrew privately by boat to a solitary place. But the crowds continued to follow him. Now evening was approaching and the people, many of whom had traveled a great distance, were growing hungry. Seeing this, Jesus sent his disciples out to gather food. But all they could find were five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus asked that they go out again and gather up the provisions that the crowds had brought to sustain them in their travels. Once this was accomplished, a vast mountain of fish and bread stood before Jesus. Upon seeing this, he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And standing before the food and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks to God. And broke the bread. 
Then he passed the food among his 12 disciples. Jesus and his friends ate like kings in full view of all the starving people. But what was truly amazing, what was miraculous about this meal was that when they had finished that massive banquet, there were not even enough crumbs left to fill a starving person's hand. Now, I was told that we represent Christ to the world. And I'm curious, based on how the world sees Christians, which telling of this story is true. That parable is called Jesus and the 5,000, a first world translation. These are parables from a book called The Orthodox Heretic. Brilliant title. (laughs) The Orthodox Heretic and Other Impossible Tales. Written by a philosopher and a theologian from Belfast named Peter Rollins. I have a couple more parables that I want to share. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the parable, read it just like I did. I'm going to offer a little bit of silence. I'm going to tell you what the title is. You know, I've had this book for, came out in 2009. I've had this book for over 10 years. Um, And like any good parable, some of these have just been chewing on me for a decade. And so I know that there's a, a tendency to want to say, like, what product or progress can I show from my church service today? What can I get out of it? What can I take with me? You, you may take nothing with you today. <laughs> and it may not be for months or years that the parable finally chews on you enough. In a world where following Christ is decreed to be subversive and illegal, you have been accused of being a believer. You've been arrested and now dragged before a court. Turns out you have been under clandestine surveillance for some time now. And so the prosecution has been able to build up quite a case against you. They begin the trial by offering the judge dozens of photographs that show you attending church meetings, the Sunday worship gathering, speaking at religious events, and participating in various prayer and worship services. After this, the the court, they present a selection of items that have been confiscated from your home, religious books that you own. Worship CDs, other great Christian artifacts. Then they step up the pace by displaying many of the poems and pieces of prose and journal entries that you have lovingly written concerning your faith over the years. 
And finally, in closing, the prosecution offers your Bible, leather-bound, underlined, showing evidence of all the notes, all the times that you've read and reread this sacred text. Throughout the case, you have been sitting silently in fear, trembling. You know deep in your heart that with the large body of evidence that has been amassed by the prosecution, you face the possibility of long imprisonment or even execution. At various times throughout the proceedings, you have lost all confidence and have been on the verge of standing up and denying Christ to save yourself. But while this thought has plagued your mind, you resist the temptation and remain focused. Once the prosecution has finished presenting their case, the judge proceeds to ask if you have anything to add. But you remain silent and resolute, terrified that if you open your mouth, even for a moment, you might deny the charges made against you. Like Christ, you remain silent before your accusers. In response, you are led outside to wait as the judge ponders your case. The hours pass slowly as you sit under guard in the foyer, waiting to be summoned back. And eventually a young man in uniform appears and leads you into the courtroom so that you may hear the verdict and receive word of your punishment. And once you have been seated in the dock, the judge, a harsh and unyielding man, enters the room, stands before you, looks deep into your eyes, and begins to speak. Of the charges that have been brought forward, I find the accused not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Your heart freezes. Then in a split second, the fear and terror that had moments before threatened to strip your resolve are swallowed up by confusion and rage. Not guilty. Despite the surroundings, you stand defiantly before the judge and demand that he give an account concerning why you are innocent of the charges in light of all this evidence. What evidence? He replies in shock. What about the poems and prose that I wrote? They simply show that you think of yourself as a poet, nothing more. But what about the services I spoke at? The times I wept in church and the long, sleepless nights of prayer? Evidence that you are a good speaker and an actor, nothing more, replied the judge. It is obvious that you deluded those around you, and perhaps at times even deluded yourself. But this foolishness is not enough to convict you in a court of law. But this is madness, you shout. It would seem that no evidence would convince you. Not so, replies the judge, as if informing you of a great and long forgotten secret. The court is indifferent toward your Bible reading. Indifferent toward your church attendance. It has no concern for worship with words and a pen. 
continue to develop your theology and use it to paint pictures of love. We have no interest in such armchair artists who spend their time creating images of a better world. We exist, this court, only for those who would lay down that brush and their life in a Christ-like endeavor to create a better world. So until you live as Christ and his followers did, until you challenge this system and become a thorn in our side, until you die to yourself and offer your body to the flames, until then, my friend, you are no enemy of ours. That was called No Conviction. There's this one line of scripture where the disciples respond to Jesus after he tells a parable and the disciples say, who can understand any of this? And Jesus goes on explaining it to them, explaining it to them in a parable. Talking about how the blind can see and those who think they can see are blind. This is one of my favorites. There once was a fiery preacher who possessed a powerful but unusual spiritual gift. He found that from an early age, whenever he prayed for someone, they would lose their faith. There once was a fiery preacher who from a young age found that he possessed an unusual spiritual gift. He found that when he would pray for someone, they would lose their faith. They would invariably lose all of their beliefs about the prophets, the scriptures, and even God. And so he learned not to pray for people, but instead limited himself to preaching, inspiring sermons, and doing good works. However, one day while traveling across the country, the preacher found himself in conversation with a businessman who happened to be going in the same direction. The businessman appeared to be very powerful and ruthless, a banker, one who was honored by his colleagues and respected by his adversaries. Their conversation began because the businessman, possessing a deep and abiding faith, had noticed the preacher reading from his Bible. He introduced himself to the preacher and they began to talk. As they chatted together, this powerful man told the preacher all about his faith in God and his love of Christ. He spoke of how his work did not really define who he was, but was simply what he had to do. The world of business is a cold one, he confided to the preacher. And in my line of work, I find myself in situations that challenge my Christian convictions. But I try as much as possible, to remain true to my faith. Indeed, I I attend a local church every Sunday. I engage in some youth work and contribute to a weekly Bible study. I'm always participating in my prayer circle. These activities help to remind me who I really am. After listening carefully to the businessman's story, the preacher began to realize the purpose 
of his unseemly gift. So he turned to the businessman and said, Would you allow me to say a prayer for you? The businessman readily agreed, unaware of what would happen. Sure enough, after the preacher had muttered a simple prayer, the man opened his eyes in astonishment. What a fool I have been all these years. It is clear to me now that there is no God, no one who is looking out for me, that there are, there are no sacred texts to guide me. There's no spirit to inspire and protect me. As they parted company, the businessman, still confused by what had taken place, returned home. But now that he no longer had any religious beliefs, he began to find it increasingly difficult to continue in his line of work. Faced with the fact that he was now really just a hard-nosed businessman, working for a corrupt system, rather than a man of God, he began to despise his own activity. Within months, he had a breakdown, couldn't continue on, and soon afterward, he gave up his line of work altogether. Slowly, feeling better about himself, he then went on to start giving to the poor all the riches that he had accumulated over the course of his life. He began to use his considerable managerial expertise to challenge the very system he had once participated in and to help those who had been oppressed by it. One day, many, many years later, he happened upon the preacher again while walking through a small town. And he ran over and fell at the preacher's feet and began to weep tears of joy. And eventually, he looked up at the preacher and smiled and said, Thank you, my dear friend. Thank you for helping me discover my faith. It's called finding faith. One more I want to share. And this is called the Last Supper. It's evening. And you are gathered together with the other disciples in a small room for Passover. All the time, you are watching Jesus while he sits quietly in the shadows, listening to the idle chatter around the table, watching over those who sit around him, and from time to time, telling stories about the kingdom of God. As night descends, a meal of bread and wine is brought into the room. It is only at this moment that Jesus sits forward so that the shadows no longer cover his face. He quietly brings the conversation to an end by capturing each one 
with an intense gaze. And then he begins to speak. My friends, take this bread, for it is my very body, broken for you. Every eye is fixed on the bread that is laid on the table. And while these words seem obscure and unintelligible, everyone seems to pick up on their gravity and feel their weight. Then Jesus carefully pours wine into the cup and each disciple watches as it overflows onto the table. Take this wine and drink of it, for it is my very blood shed for you. With these words, an ominous shadow seems to descend upon the room. A chilling darkness that makes everyone shudder uneasily. Jesus continues. As you do this, remember me. Most of the gathered disciples begin to slowly eat the bread and drink the wine. Lost in their thoughts, you, however... Cannot bring yourself to lift your hands at all. For his words have cut into you, into your soul like a knife. Jesus does not fail to notice your hesitation and approaches, lifting up your head with his hands so that your eyes are finally level with his. Your eyes meet, and for only a moment before you are able to turn away, you are caught up. And a terrifying revelation. At that instant you experience the loneliness. The pain and the sorrow that Jesus is carrying. You see nails being driven through skin and bone. You hear the crowds jeering and the cries of pain. As iron cuts against flesh. At that moment you see the sweat that flows from Jesus like blood. And experience the suffocation. And the madness and the pain that he fears will envelop him. More than all of this, however, you feel a trace of the separation he will soon feel in his own being. In that little room which occupies no significant space in the universe, you have caught a glimpse of the divine, of a vision that you should never have been disclosed. Yet it is indelibly etched into the eyes of Christ for anyone brave enough to look. You turn to leave, to run from that place. You long for death to wrap around you, but Jesus grips you with his gaze and smiles compassionately. Then he holds you tight in his arms like no one has held you before. He understands the weight that you now carry is so great that it would have been better, that it would have been better had you never been born. After a few moments, he releases his embrace and lifts the wine that sits before you whispering. Take this wine, my dear friend, and drink it up, for it is my very blood, and it is shed for you. All this makes you feel painfully uncomfortable, and so you shift in your chair and fumble in your pocket, all the time distracted by the silver that weighs heavy in your pouch. <laughs> 